the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, January 15th. It's shocking, folks. We were all wondering this offseason, when was the 2021 Australian Open going to take place? Was it going to start on time? Under what circumstances would the tournament be played? And we are finally starting to learn those answers. In fact, Australian Open qualifying officially in the books. We know which players have qualified for the year's first Grand Slam and joining me on the podcast today to talk about it. You know him as our newest contributor here at Cracked Rackets, the proprietor of our next-gen ATP 2.0 series. You might also know him as All About Tennis on Twitter as a writer for Last Word on Tennis. I know him as my friend David Gertler. David, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Uh, good. I had some sleeping issues, but what's new? <laughs> Yeah, I know. I mean, that, technical difficulties before this podcast, it's all part of the routine at this point. More than anything, it's just so great to have live tennis, right? New results back on our screen. I know. This first week was like teasing us, too, because now there's only, you know, like one challenger and some ITFs now for two weeks while they quarantine. I know. It was like a hard start, and then they were like, all right, we're cutting you off, though. I completely agree. We had one you know, a phenomenal WTA event that featured four top 10 players in the world and countless top 50 players. You had two ATP events. Of course, one of them you could only watch illegally, but still you had streaming from you know start to finish, sunrise to sundown, the Abu Dhabi starting at like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. Eastern time, and then, of course, Delray Beach taking you through the night. And now we have nothing. And it's just like, I do feel that void. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what happens when the season slows down. I I completely agree with your point there. But I'm sure for you, you're like, I don't even need to watch Abu Dhabi. Antalya, Delray Beach, nope, that's too mainstream for me. I feel like you must have injected that Australian Open qualifying just straight into your bloodstream. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was there, there were some nice challenger player type successes in Delray, though, with uh, Christian Harrison, Kiraz. Uh, it was great to see them have success. and But now next week, we finally get the Challenger Tour going with, I think, Istanbul. And then the week after that, during the second week of the quarantine, I think there's two more Challengers. Mm-hmm. So, I believe we were supposed to have, I was going to say, we were supposed to have Orleans uh, this week as well, right? Before it was canceled. Uh, it's depressing when they, when they get canceled. And, it's, and now, you know, you're hearing about all these players pulling out from the Australian Open with coronavirus too. And it's just top yeah no so a couple of things quickly then i promise we're going to get to our australian open qualifying recap i would like to point out that you know there obviously it's so disappointing so upsetting to see and the names we've heard reported thus far are andy murray we've heard alejandro davidovich fokina we've heard uh you know a a, a madison keys testing positive for covid19 yeah a bunch of positive tests and of course that's so disappointing to hear and we wish them all safe and speedy recoveries that goes without saying but it's also worth noticing All this proves is that the testing is working. I think it would have been more suspicious had not a single player tested positive for COVID because this has happened every single time a professional sporting league has has, uh, attempted to come back. And that's not to say it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the reality of living in a pandemic is by the numbers, by the percentages, people are going to test positive. And again, for me... You know, we don't have to litigate the tennis Sandgren drama. I just think it was a mis-executed from start to finish, top to bottom. Everyone is at fault in that whole scenario. But 
if if anything, this proves that the testing is working, that we're getting legitimate results when we're seeing these players test positive, and it will be fascinating to see what the Australian Open does, because if you know Craig Tiley at all, you know he's going to try and do everything in his power to make sure every player, particularly the, the showcase stars, the Andy Murray's, Madison Keyses of the world, are in the event, and the Australian government is going to say, no, 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 Craig, there's a reason we keep our cases in the double digits only. And it's because we don't mess around with this virus. And it is going to be a fascinating dynamic to watch unfold these next few weeks. Yeah. Like that, I guess. Yeah. If if everyone tested negative and everyone got on the plane, it would be a little more suspicious. Yeah, a hundred percent. And so, again, all this proves is that it works. Uh, again, we are wishing all of these players speedy recoveries. Hopefully, they will be able to participate in the Open. My other thing I wanted to ask you quickly, because David, on these mini breaks, it's been just me steering the ship here through this first week. Our winners across the board: Arena Sabalenka, obviously in Abu Dhabi. You had uh, Hubi Hercots winning his first title in Delray Beach, and then you had, of course, Alex Dimanauer getting the withdrawal from Sasha Bublik in the final two. To win his first title of this year, the first title, I suppose, of the season. Your thoughts on the three, you know, highlight events of the first week of play? Yeah, Tavalenka really has taken her form from Ostrava and ran with it. It's hard. I think you might have posted on Twitter about this, how it's hard to believe that she was getting crushed by Sariba's Tormo in that Estrava match and how she's turned it around since then. And then I also, yeah, I want to give a shout out to Sebastian Corda. What an amazing turn of serve. He made Isner serve look easy to return. He's hitting flat, hard, deep ground strokes. I'm such a shame he got uh, hurt in that final against uh, Hercats or how his, uh, it got exasperated, his injury from earlier. I think he got hurt against Tommy Paul, but, uh, Great week for him, too. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. And I feel like, uh, and I'm asking you this live, no preparation. If you want to write something about Sebastian Corda, I am happy to reboot the Next Gen ATP 2.0 series for him. Because, yeah, it's just how easy he makes everything look around the court, right? It is a little Zverevy. It is, I, I've said this on Twitter, a little Burdichy. And by the way, shout out to you for calling me Alex on Twitter. You're one of, you're probably the first person to do it, David. And that means a lot to me because that was the name I was given at birth um but I always I always call people better yeah I always do (laughs) yeah they don't call you the Gert monster uh in college and my high school cross country coach called me Gert um okay good Uh, I'll throw that in the mix every now and then David but (laughs) you know my point being yes I completely agree with you the backhand looks so easy for Sebastian Corda, the forehand power came off so naturally. And it's just like if you float a ball in the center of the court, which Tommy Paul did on occasion, which John Isner during baseline rallies does on occasion, he's going to turn on it and he's going to take control of the point from the baseline. And I think he's not a great volleyer, but he knows when to come forward. The instincts are there. Exactly. And yeah, I, I just agree with you. Sebastian Corda blew me away. Good start for Hoopy Hercots, who honestly didn't play great this week, but I just feel like he's someone who always will play to the level of his competition. So every match he's going to play in, it'll end up being close. Do you think, is there any truth to that at all? Do you, do you get what I'm saying there? Yeah, I said on Twitter, I think he looked a little sluggish this week, but Completely it didn't matter. Agree. He was just so much better than everyone else in the field uh, that he was just able to 
kind of toast this week and won his second title, I think. Um, so that's good for him. That's the other thing. That that final match, it was two players who make the game of tennis look so easy. Just so easy. I mean, between Hercots, Korda, the size, the length, that's modern t- men's tennis at its finest, folks. And so, uh, yeah, I agree with you, Hercots. I don't want to say he slept walk to the title because that's not fair to him, but uh, obviously... Uh, just played well enough to take home the victory. The other one, you know, your other comment for Sabalenka, I've talked about her so much, but yeah, I mean, when she plays this brand of power tennis, I think she flirts in the neighborhood of Serena and Osaka, where it's just like, okay, it doesn't really matter what you do. I'm going to execute my game, and because I'm so much better than all of you, I'm just going to beat you. And that's how, I, I mean, is that fair? Do you think she flirts in that neighborhood in terms of her power tennis? Yeah, it, you know, there's some weeks where there are some weeks though where you know Osaka and Serena are, are a little tighter from the baseline than Sabalenka. There are some weeks when Sabalenka can just be wild, um, which you don't see as much from Osaka and Serena. But I, I, I was, I've just been so impressed with her. She really bulldozed through this week, um, pretty, pretty comfortably, um, and just is really playing top-notch power tennis. No, I I agree. Again, I don't think she owns in the neighborhood, right? They brought together the condo association. Serena and Osaka were like, all right, we're not going to let Sabalenka buy here yet, but she can rent whenever she'd like. She can come take a place for two weeks, enjoy some sunshine in power neighborhood. But yes, I agree with you. It's not quite as consistent as those other two, although I would say she is as dynamic of an athlete as those other two, and that is something that I think is going to bode large here in this 2020. 21 season. But of course, again, the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast today to talk about the Australian Open qualifying results we saw, we know who is going to be partaking, or at least we know for now, barring any positive tests, barring changes in the format, yada, yada, yada. We have our qualifiers for the year's first Grand Slam. Before we get into those qualifying uh, most and least impressive performances, I will remind all of you listeners, the reason we are able to do this day in, day out is because of the support we get from from all of you, from our Patreon family, and of course, from our friends at Midwest Sports. You thought you were going to get away with one without me sneaking in a live read. Oh no, I have the live read planned, folks. Just remember, if you need anything for your tennis equipment needs, perhaps you have a qualifying event coming up. Maybe not for the Australian Open. Maybe it's just your local tournament. Uh, But you want to look your best. You want to feel your best on court. Go find the best deals, the best equipment, all at the best prices with our friends at MidwestSports.com. You use that promo code CR50 You'll let them know we sent you there. So, MidwestSports.com, we are so appreciative for their support. The least we can do, ask you to support them as well. MidwestSports.com, the promo code is CR15. All right, David, with that in mind, let's start with the men's singles qualifying winners because I thought there were some particularly funky results. You look at the players in the end who are going to be qualifying for this event. You have, and I'm just going to read them off quickly, all of your qualifiers, excuse Excuse me. You have Silva, Tomic, Halice, Karasev, Vandesanschlup, Elkaraz, Kressy, Mo, Sefilian, Mahak, Troisky, Kopenhan, Stakovsky, Immer, Laxinen, and Via Martinez. David Gertler, your three most impressive uh, men's singles qualifying performers. Actually, we'll start with your first. Your first most impressive men's single qualifying performer is. Well, I first want to say that I did predictions, and my predictions for these sucked. Um, <laughs> so I really 
so I, a lot of these quality qualifiers you just named, I did not pick. Um, my first one is Ratzev. Um, and I'll tell you why. He first off, brutal first round against Brandon Nakashima. Nakashima was up a break in the third set. I think one out at end. And Karatsev came back. And then in the last two matches, he lost six games combined against Purcell and Mueller. Um, super impressive performances from uh, the Russian. Yeah, and I mean, Karatsev was one of the winners of the 2020 ca- uh, Challenger season without question. You look at the results he's put together, and I believe right now he's currently in the top 115, around 112 of the current rankings. But Karatsev is now 34-10, and 10, David, in his last 52 weeks. I mean, that's nuts. And yeah, as you mentioned, to, to overcome uh, Nakashima in that first-round match, a three-set battle, 6-2, 6-7, 6-2, he wins that one. Straight sets the rest of the way. Dropped three games in each of those last two matches. It's clear for Karatsev, who, at 27 years old, I wouldn't consider him old by any stretch of the imagination. That's a guy right smack dab in the middle of his prime, and it's clear he's playing the best tennis of his career. Yeah, and he's doing it across two surfaces. A lot of his success end of last year was on clay, and he's now translated that to hard really quickly. And he, he played he played a lot of matches during the hiatus um, East Coast uh, Exhibition Series, so I think that probably helped him in his paying off. Yeah, you mentioned it. Uh, for him, he goes uh, finals of Prague, loses to Stan uh, Wawrinka. He then wins Prague next week. He then wins the Ostrava Challenger. He, you know, loses in French Open qualifying to Sebastian Corda, which looks much more impressive when you remember Corda ends up making the fourth round of the French Open and has been a stud as of late, as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. So, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you have him on your list. That way, I don't have to talk about him. That way, I can cheat and talk about someone else on my list but I think pretty unequivocally and Karatsev was the number three seed here in Australian Open qualifying right and the fact that he drew Nakashima in the first round I don't think that was something any of us were happy yeah it's not something any of us were excited about but I mean the guy the guy deserves to be in the main draw he is one of the 128 best players right now on tour Uh, his form has reflected that the results have reflected that and now here he qualifies for this opening Australian Open I want to flip gears here and go with a guy uh, who was unseated in his run to qualifying, but ends up qualifying for the Australian Open, and I tweeted this stat out for the fourth time in five years. David, where are you on the Michael Moe bandwagon? Because I I still, just watching him play the athleticism, I think he's a guy who always plays. Super athletic. Yeah. yeah, and he's a guy who plays to the level of his opponent as well. He's someone who, okay, you're going to hit the ball a little bit bigger. He's going to absorb your pace, use your athleticism to be six feet behind the baseline and draw you into the net, hit these incredible passing shots. When the first serve is landing, it's in that 120 to 130 mile per hour range. And he's someone who has continued to try to improve his net game, continue to try to understand he has the chances to move forward. I just... I still like, there's so many things about Michael Moe's game that I like, and I still see the scenario, despite him, you know, really struggling with injuries these past few seasons, really, you know, whenever he seemed to have a good streak going, either an injury would come up or then there would be just some sort of streak of poor losses. He hasn't been able to sustain the momentum he's built in his career, but he's been top 100 before, and just watching him I don't want to say demolish Arthur Rinderneck because it ends up being six three seven six, but I believe Mo was up six three five two in that match, and just 
Rinderneck, who's got some weapons, by the way, 6'4", 6'5". Yeah, and Mo just absorbed all of it, and it just it looked like they were playing different games. I, I love how you said absorbed. I completely agree. He absorbs power so well. He's so good from – so consistent from the baseline, and he know, he picks his spots where to hit winners, where to go for his shots really effectively. I completely agree with everything you said. And I, you know, I didn't, you know, he kind of flies under the radar. Like when I was looking, you know, when I was trying to think of the three favorites, I didn't think of him, but now that you say it, it it is, you're totally right. I think that's a great pick. Look, you, you talk about for Michael Mo, it wasn't just the win over Rinderneck. Obviously, that was an impressive one to end things, but he knocks off uh, Petrovic, the number 24 seed, three and two in his first round match, I believe. Who against... played really well at the last season. Mm-hmm. Someone who was certainly in form, I agree with you. And then he beat Jolie uh, in the second round of qualifying. And I, I almost forgot. It's funny because I was watching the Gojo Laxanen match and it went to a third set breaker. And just in my head, I was like, okay, they'll play to seven. And uh, Laxanen takes a seven five lead and they're like going to the bench and they didn't shake hands. And I was like, wait, you're. You're not going to shake hands? Like, are you kidding me? And then I realized, oh, yeah, they play third set breakers to 10 in Australia. That makes much more sense. And the reason I bring that up, Michael Moe, a 10-7 in the third set breaker win over Julie in that second round of qualifying. And so it was just physically. It must hot. suck, though, if you're, like, up 8-6. You know, like, for oh. instance, Avoth Wild, I think, was up 8-6 over Hase and then ended up losing 10-8. Like, that must really, like, because you kind of won the tiebreaker, but not really, you know? <laughs> yeah, what are your thoughts on the third set breaker to 10? I don't, I'd, I'd prefer either no tiebreaker or to 7, honestly. It's weird going to 10. Maybe just because I'm not used to it. Um, yeah. It's so interesting because, yeah, we played third set breakers to 10 in the juniors, but that was in lieu of a third set. If yeah. I, it's kind of weird. I agree. It's like, if you're going to do a tiebreaker, why not just stick to the basics? Yeah, and no, I no, I the super tiebreak actually makes more sense than the ten once you're at six all. Um, yeah. for me, but, but I think it's just because maybe we're not used as used to it. Yeah, no, I have no problems with it. Like I'm not against it for any reason. Play to ten. What does that matter? Three more points. We're all about that. But. Um, yeah, anyways, it is definitely a little funky. But yeah, for Michael Mo, so he had the dramatic win he needed. Now he got the two straight set wins. He's in again to the main draw for the fourth time in f- five years in Australia. And he always does seem to start off his season with a little bit of momentum. The question for him, can he avoid injuries this year? He's a guy who's 14-8 and eight in his last 52 weeks, you know, last year at the end of the season. He qualifies for Roland Garros, goes to play the carry challenger, but has to withdraw against Eubanks in that season second round match we'll all be knocking on wood hopefully Michael Moe stays healthy because I think we all agree he's got the talent to do some really special things in tennis all right let's go to number two on your list David who do you have your second most impressive performer through Australian Open men's qualifying uh tennis Twitter favorite Carlos Alcaraz qualified for first for first slam at 17 years old and he got in you know end of 2020 strong he won three challengers after the hiatus last year and was in the final of another he he didn't he lost to um he lost in the first round of qualifying of the french open uh which was you know tough but he played who do you remember who, who did he play again uh it was an australian um who big serve it was a tougher match than it seemed <laughs> i um, want to say sam oh, broth yeah but it was yeah it's vukic uh, Yes, yes. Vukic, it was a tough match. You know, Vukic played, it was a tougher match than it seemed. So he, 
but he finally qualified. He Haransky in the first round. Haransky plays has plays Alcaraz very tough. So the fact that he went three sets with Haransky, he was not a shock to me. But it was great to see him come through that match when he could have folded. You know, he thought you know in his head, "Oh, I'm going to lose in another first round of qualifying." Um, but he stayed strong, and then he didn't lose a set to Karlovsky and Hugo Delian um, in his last two matches. So I think it was great to get his first slam qualifying, uh, getting past qualifying under his belt. And I'm really looking forward to the future with Carlos. Yeah, he drops that, uh, I think it was the first set he dropped to Horansky, as you mentioned, 7-5, but that's the only set he drops in this. The 6-6 six and six win over Karlovsky is particularly impressive because, as you mentioned, Karlovsky on a hard court, but then, you know, all of last season was, you know, he, he ended the season really well, and it's just, it's how routine Alcaraz made it look. You're absolutely right. Considering we really hadn't seen him play a professional match on a hard court since he had made his big breakthrough for him to come out and show off the level he did. It's just, it all translates to the hard courts. Yeah, he had right really there. only played at the ITF level in hard, hard courts. And he managed to, you know, he'd really only played challengers on clay. Yeah. Uh, so, so Alcaraz has played, first of all, how many matches do you think Alcaraz has played in his career? Oh man, I am. I'm always so bad at guessing this stuff. I really have no idea. <laughs> so he's played 85 career matches, which feels a little low. Uh, by the way, but it, it or it feels like he's played more than that, but he's only he has, played he has 85. Challengers with just 85 matches. Yeah, that's crazy. 66 and 19 overall, 50 and 17 on clay, but 16 and 2 on hard courts in his career. That's pretty nuts. I mean, again, it hasn't been challenger level stuff. The three wins he gets here at the Australian Open were really his first, uh, I suppose, top 200 battles on a hard court, but. Is there any reason to doubt this guy's going to be a stud on the hard court? Evidently not. It does seem like it will all translate. No, and he won a couple of features on hard courts. He's, he beat Evan Furness, who is yeah, who is all having a lot of success now in the ITF circuit. And, and yeah, I mean, there's no reason to think that he can't be a really good hard court player. His game is best on clay, but so is Nadal's, and he's had a lot of success off of uh clay and you know just because your game is most suited to, for clay doesn't mean it's n- not suited for hard courts and he he has the game where he can be s- successful on any surface he plays no a hundred percent and it's hilarious to me by the way I, the, I, the reason we keep bringing you back on the show i we needed an evan furnace reference so we can <laughs> knock that off the box now. i just tweeted about him today actually <laughs> Well, someone else I know you tweeted about, someone who uh, I believe you tweeted about, someone who has carried his level over from the end of last season, uh, another guy on my list, and Alcaraz would have been on my list as well, so I get to go off list here. Thomas Mahak, the young man from the Czech Republic, 2-1 yes. yes. in his final round of qualifying over Torpegard. He won, I believe, his first challenger title at the end of last season and carries it over here with just, uh, again, just kind of looked... It kind of made it look really easy uh, through all of qualifying. You look at what he was able to do through his first three matches. I believe, if memory serves me correct, I'm trying to pull up the scores here. But I think he went straight sets in all three, David. And just, I mean, the 20-year-old, he's he's going to be an issue this season. Yeah, no, he, you know, there's, a, you know, something that's talked about a lot is how the young Czech players are coming. Um, and they're coming fast. And he's definitely one of them. Beating Mela Jenny in the second round and Torpegard in the third round. Torpegard's, you know, we've talked about him in the past. He's a he's a really good hardcore player. Mela Jenny's a player rising quickly who has a 
huge forehand. It's not, and he won all these matches in straight sets. And he won, he made the, he won his first challenger before the hiatus last year and then made the finals of another one after the hiatus in Bratislava where he barely lost a martyr. Um, he has a really bright future and uh, along with guys like Laheka, you know, the young Czech crew, I think are really going to make some noise. Yeah, no, I mean, for Thomas Mahak, you mentioned uh, he wins his first challenger title at the end of last, or at the start of, wait, no, at the end of last season, or did he lose to Bratislava? He, he won Koblenz in February, and then he, he lost to Martyr, in right, in that final? In yeah, so, you know, first two challenger finals, gets his first title this season, you look at where he's at in his last 52 weeks, 29 and 12, I mean, it's your classic sign of a guy making his breakthrough, and what he did so well last season by the numbers is just how effective he is on that first serve. That first serve is absolutely a weapon. It was in his match against Torpegard. He wins, I think, it was like 77% of the total service points uh, for our on-serve in that match, and I mean, he just has ATP weapons, and yeah, you're right. The young Czech players are coming, uh, and Mahak might be the leader of that list, so a great result for him. All right, give me your final most impressive player from men's qualifying this one i went back and forth i thought about elias yamur but i ultimately i i I don't really like the guy but i went with tomic uh he won (laughs) just because he you know what he showed some fight that he hasn't shown you know that he's not known for in his career he won every match in three sets he beat kovalik who's a pretty good player best on clay but then he won third set tie breaks against school Caden Smith. Um, and I just think that he's finally showing the fight that tennis fans have hoped to see from him. And he acted like he wanted to be there, which was nice. And he has the talent where when he's focused, he's a really good player. Yeah. Look, there's a big Tomich fandom in my past, and it's because a guy I played with in high school, one of my closest friends named Sven Kranz, is Bernard Tomich, just a lesser version, I suppose. Um, And yeah, I mean, look, I'm not going to give you credit for beating JP Smith, seven, six in the third, like, you know, JP Smith, phenomenal doubles player, former all American at Tennessee, pretty one dimensional as a singles player. And like, if Bernard Tomich is the talent that he thought he was, uh, he should be winning that match. And so like, yeah, that's a good win for him. I agree. I can't put him in my most impressive just because, I'm just out on the Tomich bandwagon. Um, but someone I, you know, some of the other guys, and we can mention all of these winners. I know you, like me, are still on the Kimmer Copenhans bandwagon. Ever I since thought he about won that, Kimmer too. Yeah, yeah, ever since he won that junior uh, French Open title, we still believe in his talent because it really is. It's just such a smooth game. He makes it look very, very easy. So consistent. Um, to an, every point. Yeah, and two and zero win for him over Zoomher. That's a good win. That just objectively yeah. really good but Mark win for Marchenko in the first round is not an easy opponent. No, absolutely. So I think that's a really good one. You mentioned Elias Emer as well. Uh, I think he and his brother Mikhail will both be spending time in the top one hundred. Uh, you know, for. The- I don't want to say the majority of their career, but for a lot of their career. And so uh, I think that is something to look out for as well. I thought Borna Gojo was so great during this qualifying, and I think he is going to have the big year. But the last name I want to mention quickly because I am still a believer in this guy. He's struggled with a bunch of different injuries throughout his career. But, David, what do you think of Roman Sefillian? I think he's one of those players flying under the radar that's going to 
we're going to hear a lot more about soon. He's re- he impressed me last season a lot when I watched him play. Um, really good on indoor heart. Yeah, I, I mean, talk about a power hitter, right? Guy just smacks the cover off the ball. He's still 23 years old is just what I would like to point out. And 181 in the rankings, you look at what he's done. Uh, of course, last year, I believe he won a ch- his first challenger title in twenty uh, in February at the start of the season 2019. He made a bunch of ch- uh, futures finals as well. Again, a guy who has dealt with a bunch of injuries throughout his career, but he seems healthy. And I'm telling you, watch out for him. Wins at the end of the season over J.J. Wolf, over Torpegard on the indoor hard courts. Three set losses to Ofner, to Matrizak to end his season. I, yeah, I, I'm a believer in Sevilla, and I think he, again, the power tennis he can play for him to qualify here at the Australian Open. That that's big for him. So uh, those would be that would be my final most impressive performance. Let's flip gears now. Let's stay positive. Let's go to the women's side. David, give me your number one most impressive performer through Australian Open women's qualifying. Uh, Rebecca Marino, um, and that's she didn't lose a set. And I just think that the fact that she qualified with her story of being away from tennis for so long, the the foot injury, her father's death, um, I just think it's such a great story to see her in the main draw. And to do so without even losing a set is super impressive to me. No, uh, I, yeah, it's it's unbelievable. It's maybe the story of qualifying i mean it's probably the most impressive performance of any player i completely agree and you know beating tomova is not like that was her second man that's not like an easy match i don't think yeah no not at all and look you talk about for rebecca marino now what has she done her last 52 weeks you know again she didn't play the entirety of 2020 in 2019 she um uh, was able to play, but it was mostly at the ITF uh, circuit level. And she's someone who was ranked as high as number 38 in the world. And so, uh, again, we will have to continue to see what she has in source. Feels worth noting she played, you know, her last match in 2019 was a French Open qualifying three-set loss to Elena Rybakina. Uh, which we obviously yeah. know what Rabakina went on to do over the next year and a half. So don't count out Rebecca Moore. Uh, absolutely. She looks healthy, and, I mean, it's such a phenomenal story, such a great victory for her. I agree as well, and her level of play was pretty high too. Um, my, my first player I want to talk about is Kaya Yuvan, uh, the number one uh, seed yeah. here. And I know it's not a surprise to say the number one seed advances to qualify for the main draw, but it's just the way she did it, David. I mean, she— Blitzed her competition, didn't drop a set. Two and four over Kalanina in round number two was maybe the most impressive win through all of qualifying because that's power tennis. And she just, I just kind of hit her off the court. It was just, I thought Yvonne was. I, I when I watch Yvonne, when I watch Kostyuk, when I watch some of these young players, I'm just like, oh my god! Like I, the how good you're going to have to be to be a top twenty player in 2025 is just going to be astronomical. And Storm Stan Sanders in the first round, that's not the easiest first round. She plays a tricky lefty game, and then she destroyed Sramkova in the destroyed. last in the final qualifying match. And she could have, it could have even been worse than the 6 1, 6 2 scoreline. Um, so good for her. And I agree. She's coming, and she she's another player that's coming fast up the ranks, and that we should be, we will see a lot more of coming up soon even more than we already have you know because we all know that she's one of the young players to watch out for and she just proved it once again 
Yeah, of course, former top junior in the world, Yvonne. Uh, you look at what she has done her last 52 weeks and currently ranked number 104. But uh, the 20-year-old, obviously 20-11 and 11 in her last 52. Last year, she was able to play pretty much entirely WTA-level events that include qualifying for the Australian Open, qualifying and winning a match in Acapulco, uh, winning a match in Palermo as well. She won a match at the U.S. Open, won or qualified in Rome. It's just, you know, did she get the wild cards of some of her peers? Did she get the big quarterfinal, semifinal at a WTA level result yet? No, she hasn't. But sometimes that's not the growth curve. Sometimes players mm-hmm. have to go through qualifying and to qualify for all of these events to get some of the wins she did during the season. You know, she beat Trevisan on clay in Palermo qualifying. Trevisan goes on to make the quarterfinals of Roland Garros. So obviously Yvonne's level, you know, is right there. She beat Von Drusova first round in Palermo. I I think the mo- the it's, majority a lot of her results have come on clay, but it's clear it translates across surface. It's usually better to come through qualifying than to just get a bunch of wild cards. I think, and unless unless you know, right? Like for some players, you're like, yeah, they're ready, they're ready, they can go yeah. do that thing. But yes, in general, I very very much agree with you. Always better to earn your path there than to be handed anything in life. But all right, give me your next most impressive performer. Okay, so this is one in the. I know a lot of people don't like her. I'm a big Sarah Ronnie fan. You know, 33 <laughs> years old. She has no, like, like if she wanted to retire tomorrow, she's had an amazing career. But yet she's out there. She she battled. She went three sets every every match against uh, Liang, Garcia, Perez, and Konhu. Had to come back from a set down against Garcia, Perez, and Konhu. Garcia, Perez, who double bageled her first round opponent. And Konhu had played, who beat Freed Salmon and was playing great tennis. Um, such a fighter. You know, I'm such a fan of people like her and Sarah Saribas, Tormo, Copahans, who don't have that huge game, but that are fighting for every point and don't have that big serve, but who grind it out from the baseline. I thought it was, you know, and she really, you know, she's been pretty good on clay, you know. In recently, but she has not been great on hard court, and so to see her do this on hard is so impressive to me. Yeah, I mean, look, we do the Sarah Ronnie Award every tournament for the most ridiculous performance, you know, the most oxymoronical performance, something that just doesn't make sense to your eyes, but kind of happened out there, uh, and that's Sarah Ronnie to a T. Yeah, it's unconventional, it's chops, it's high top spin it slaps it's a little bit of everything and it's always her drop shots one of the best i've ever seen yeah and it's a lot of double faults as well um (laughs) and uh look i mean yeah for her to qualify to beat anaconia who you know has struggled with so many injuries and her even playing another australian open event getting to the final round of qualifying is a huge win for all of us tennis fans uh but yeah sarani grinded her down or sarani irani excuse me <laughs> grinded her down in that final round qualifying match so i agree it was a really really impressive performance from her uh one player i want to throw out there now uh who i just you know we poke fun here on this podcast when people tweet out or people say, you know, no one's talking about it. It's usually actually, no, 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 you're just talking about it for the first time. A lot of people are talking about it, but now you're talking about it too should be what you say. But I don't th- – I think people are legitimately – have forgotten how talented Whitney Osegwe is. Oh, that was my next one. <laughs> oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And because, you know, watching Osegwe play and she gets straight set wins over Kawa and Gadecki in her first two matches. Kawa, of course, the number five seed in qualifying. Gadecki, she then, 
I've wa- I watched her in Australia. She's underrated. She's a really good player. I agree. And Boozner Rescue was up big on Osegue as well in that final match. And I'm telling you, spend. This is one of those players you can spend three minutes watching, and you're like, whoa, uh, what? I don't get like. Is this she's top fifty, right? When you watch Whitney Osegway, you just the explosion around the court, how fluid she is as an athlete, and then her ability to produce power from six feet behind the baseline. The ball just explodes off of her racket from her ground strokes, and now sometimes it explodes into the back fence. But the ball just absolutely explodes. Her willingness to move forward, the first serve when it's landing, can be such a weapon. I am a. I mean, there are a lot of little things she needs to improve on, but I, I, at a you know again at a long term at a macro level, that's what I'm looking for. I, I, Whitney Osegway's got the entire you know arsenal of skills, the complete package as a player. Yes, she came back from six two five two then against Bruzarnescu. So great fight, and you know what I like about. It? her is that you know what she struggled to end 2020 she lost seven straight matches she i think she was injured and she and she came back this season with a purpose and she fought back and you're right she has such powerful ground strokes she was really rising quickly and she was becoming a name that we talked about a bunch maybe end of beginning 2019 end of 2018 around that time i can't remember exactly when but she was on the rise for a while and I, I, I agree. The potential is still there. Her, She has easy power. She moves well. She has good controlled aggression when she's playing well from the baseline. And I, I'm excited about her game, too. And it was great to see her qualify and fight back in that Boozer Nesky match. Yeah. Whitney Osegue is always a weird one for me because she's eight days older than my little brother. Um, and I'm like, oh my God, someone that young is that talented and having this degree of success. It's always the one that puts everything in perspective for me. But, you know, at 16 years old, she won an 80K. Uh, in 2018, as a 16 year old, she was 23 and 10 in ITF matches, 23 and 12 the following year. Now, to your point, she did not find her rhythm at any point during the 2020 season. But for her, you know, she's still 18 years old and inside the top yeah. 200. And with all due respect to – sorry, sorry to cut you off. With all due respect to Ann Lee and Katie McNally and, and Claire Liu and all these other incredibly talented young American women right now ascending the rankings, you know, Osegway was – the one who, well, some of the other ones were too, which is so amazing. But Osegue was the number one junior in the world, right? She was uh, the player to beat in American junior tennis, and she has that pedigree to her. And I don't think you can forget about that just because of one bad season, particularly a bad season that comes before you're even 20 years old. And so I just, I'm still a believer in the Osegue game. Yeah, yeah. And I think she was injured. Like, I, yeah, I, I think 100%. She was a little bit too. Um, and yeah, she, uh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I, I remember her beating Brangle. I was thinking of, I remember because I would watch this match, Brangle versus Asikwe on that uh, 80K in, um, in, on, on green clay, uh, first half of 2019. And she was playing spectacular tennis. It was, it's not, she hit through Brangle and, you know, had that rally tolerance to, you know, wait for opportunity because Brangle gets everything back, you know. And I remember watching that match and being like, this player has the potential to be special. 
Mm-hmm. No, and I think that carries in uh, to this 2021 season. So Whitney Osigwe back on our list of someone to watch. And again, you can pick so many other impressive players. Clara Burel, uh, the young French woman who continues Parankaba. her— yeah, Parankova is another good one as well. Hrit Minin, a uh, three-set win over Lepchenko. Kochi Areto, who I think quietly took a big jump during the 2020 season. She, as the number 18 seed, qualifies as well. Mayo Hibi. Well, can... Sorry, go ahead. Say that one more time. I didn't expect her to do that in hardcore. Yeah. No, Kochi Areto is solid. She was pretty good, I believe, last year in Acapulco as well. Um... Acapulco feels like uh, it's amazing before the pandemic and after, you know, and before the hiatus and after the hiatus feel like uh, different millenniums. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was 2020 part A. That was back when things were normal. Um, But of course, no, you know, Mayo Hibby, uh, 6-4-6-4 win. I continue to be fascinated by her skill set. And, you know, you can go through Maya Sharif, Egyptian qualifier. Obviously, that's a big milestone for her. Yeah, such a big uh, moment for her. But the other qualifiers we haven't talked about, Danilovich, Parankova, Babos, uh, I believe, Francesca Jones, Samsonova, uh, Paquet. Francesca uh, Jones, that's a great story. Yeah, another, I agree. I mean, all there were a lot of great stories through qualifying, but there were also some not as great stories, David. Uh. And let's talk about those for a little bit here down the home stretch. Let's start with the men who disappointed us, give me your most disappointing men's singles performers of the Australian Open qualifying event. Do you want me to give all three or just one? Uh, uh do we want to, No, you know what? Let's dwell in some misery. Let's go one at a time here quickly. Give me your first. Okay. So the one that, you know, me and Alex Baroque talked a lot about this guy. Rudolf Molliker uh, <laughs> is just a disaster right now. Ten losses in a row. Um he had lots of promise. Um, you know, he beat. It's hard to believe he beat Vesely to win the Hell Hilburn uh, Challenger in late. I mean, in 2018. But he's gone hell fast. He lost to the probably the second worst player in the draw, uh, Peter Polanski, in the first <laughs> round of qualifying. That was a rough. Yeah, the, the the stream was really glitchy, but from what I saw, it was a really rough, poor quality match and. That was a terrible loss. You know, both, it was a great opportunity for both players because they both been struggling so much. But Molliker, geez, that was, it was bad. Um, no, I agree. He was a guy I considered putting on my list. Another guy who I'd just say bad loss, like in that category. And, you know, we're huge college tennis fans here at Cracked Rackets. And we know Rinky Hijikata, who's going to play number three singles for Carolina, is a you know an outstandingly talented young player. But Chris Eubanks can't be losing two and three to a guy who's playing three singles for North Carolina at this point in his career. He just yeah. can't be. And that is, that's just not a good loss. It, and, I, you know, it's again, it's one day. Uh, it's such a quick translation. You're traveling all this distance to play this match. That was a match they literally could have just played at Chapel Hill and been like, no, nah, we're yeah. good. We don't have to travel all that way. Um, but that's just a bad loss. It, yeah. And the fact that, you, you know, his serve wasn't, you know, losing six two six three, you just don't expect that from Eubanks. You expect him to at least be able to get to some tie breaks, but being broken three times in two sets is just against Hijikata, who's a fine player, but he's not a you know he's not 
fantastic. It's I agree with you. Not a great one. Not a great loss there. Yeah, it's just it was too easy for Rinky. That was the problem. But all right, give me number two for you. Um, number two is gonna be Benjamin Bonzi. Uh, played well in the second half of twenty twenty. It was a very uninspiring effort against Holis, and you know Holis isn't a bad player, but I expect more from Bonzi than six zero six two. Given no. what he's shown, you said the best word: uninspired. It was an uninspired performance. And you know, at least I, you know, it's okay. It's okay to lose, but like I want to see some fight. You know, I want to see that Copahan's attitude. No, a hundred, like for Lorenzo Musetti, who loses his first round qualifying in three mat, uh, sets to Van de Sanchloop. A, Van de Sanchloop was one of the best players down the home stretch of 2020. B, great hardcore player. Yeah, and B, it's a three set loss. You're like, you can never mm-hmm. be that upset with a three set loss because the effort was there. Of course, I'm about to contradict that statement with my next least impressive performer, a guy we talked about in our next gen ATP 2.0 series. Yuri Rodionov's got to beat Victor Troisky at this point of his career because wh- what is Troisky yeah. going to do to hurt him? And like two and one in the last two sets after you win the first six two, it's a brain fart. Like, come on. Yeah, I, you know it's it's tough. The guys we talked about during next gen, Nakashima, Musetti, Rodionov, they all lost in the first. Yeah, game. even our boy Rusevori, second round loss in Antalya. I was like, come on, Rus. It's like now we look ridiculous, but yeah, I agree. Um, it just it's if he's going to make that next step, you expect him to win a match like this. And you know, he started off really strong. Um, you know, won the you know, six-two first set, and then he just kind of collapsed. Um, and I know you know Troisky has a good serve, um, and he's a good you know he's a decent player. But like I said, if he, you know Rodi and I, I expect Rodi to win a match like this if he's going to make that next set. Yeah, it's just in the first set, he was able to keep the ball out of Troisky's strike zones, break his rhythm like he is able to do in so many matches, and then all of that just went away in the second and third sets. It just didn't make much sense to me. But all right, give me your final most disappointing performer. I This is a guy who I had qualifying, and he suffered one of the worst losses in the first round of qualifying. Um, so this one made me look real stupid. Uh it was uh, Alejandro Tabilo. Uh, I, you know, I he he ended uh, twenty twenty uh, decently strong. Um, he is I you know I thought you know this year he could make the next step. You know, like we've been talking about Rodi and Ov. and Hugo Delian on a hard court is not anything to be too scared of. Um, and so to lose six one six zero. Is just for me pretty unacceptable. There's yeah. no reason why he should be getting only one game against Hugo Delian on a hard court. No, Except I Delian was nothing. He was not great to end 2020. I think anytime you lose a match one and zero, you belong in the most disappointing list. Like you can just pencil that guy in. And so yeah, I agree with you. That was a bad result. You know. I wanted to put Ernesto Escobedo on my list, but Matthias Borg has just been playing so well of late. So, like, I yeah. I can't penalize him for that loss. But I do want to see Escobedo bounce back during this 2021 season just because of the way he can strike the ball off both wings. He's not the best athlete, but it, it's, it's just too powerful. When he gets his feet set. 
yeah, he's just too powerful of a player to be outside of the top 150 for this long. Um, trying to think who my next guy would be. I mean, I think we named them all. I think we Max got Moran all of them. Six one six L. I guess we can add him to the list. Yeah, here. sure. Throw him on the list as well. I guess Carlos Taburner. Like I would have loved to see him beat Dustin Brown in that second round because I'm, I'm a big Taburner believer. I think it can happen off, not just on clay as well, but on other surfaces. But yeah, I would say overall it was a pretty impressive men's qualifying slate of results. Let's flip gears now. Funny and go. you mentioned Taburner because. I, I actually thought Mark Horner was going to beat him in quali- in quali- and then qualify, and then Taburner ended up winning the first round. So it's funny how we, it's, uh, we totally I, disagree. Because I, 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 I thought that Mark Horner would have so – I thought I think Mark Horner is better on hard course than cl- in clay, but Taburner uh, wore him down from the baseline. No, Taburner is, uh, yeah, just a baller. And so, no, I, um, I, I'm a believer. I'm a fan. Um, so yes, Carlos, to Tiber- I mean, so yes, anyways, those would be our least impressive men's results. Let's go quickly through the women. Now, who are some that you would have liked to see a little more out of during this qualifying? Um, first one is, uh, Eugenie Bouchard. She beat Myers in the first round, but for me, I, ex- I have really high expectations. You know, she, uh, Bouchard is another one that ended 2020 pretty positively. She did really well in Istanbul. I know that's on clay, but. Still, I mean, I expect her to qual- to qualify for a tournament like this. And yes, she beat Abby Myers, but then she lost in straight sets to Yuan. I just don't think that's acceptable. Yeah, I mean, yes, you're right. And I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. It's just not acceptable. That's just not a loss she should be taking. And so um, I would put her on the list as well. Someone I have on my list too, who I just think at this point of her career should be qualifying for, uh, for these slams. And that's Katie McNally, who just, yeah. I mean, one in four second round loss to her against Tan. I'm not saying it's a bad loss, but Katie McNally's I just think, I think Katie McNally's ready to be a top 75 player. I think she's got that sort of weapons, her forehand, her serve, particularly when she's playing hard court events to not qualify for this grand slam is a little surprising for me. She's, she's stagnated a bit though. I watched uh, some of her end of last season against uh, Tossin and she really, she just, she's kind of lost her way a little bit, I think. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I, single. See, I, I'm not ready to say that because of how good she was at the U.S. Open, right? Didn't she beat Alexandrova at the U.S. Open? Is my I think my memory is serving me correctly here. Um, and like, I just think the power tennis she plays when it's clicking, it it, it works. She can hit opponents yeah. off the court. Now you're, you know, what is Plan B when the forehand's not landing and she likes to slice the backhand? She likes to get to the net whenever possible. Those are all really good things, particularly in a hard court match. But when the first weapon's not working, what's Plan B? I think that's the question for her as she moves through her pro career because Plan A is top fifty good, but Plan mm-hmm. B and the defense probably isn't quite there yet. I complete. I completely agree with you. Yeah. All right. Well, then, give me your next most disappointing player. Uh, my next one is, and I feel bad saying this, but Claire Tossin, not not just because of how she lost, but she it was kind of a going out six three six C to Zavadska, and I know Zavadska is a decent player, but I just maybe I kind of hyped her up in my head too much in that article I wrote, but I expected <laughs> a little more um, from her. No. 
again, I think by virtue of the score line, she probably does belong uh, in this conversation because three and three, it's just a match. I agree. I, I expected Claire Tawson to win it as well. I mean, she was on my list. I just, I have big expectations for her heading into this season. The first round loss, not something I expected. Uh, I'm trying to think. Those were really, I mean, other than that, it was a pretty. I, I have mean, one. Oh, okay, give me give me your last one because I really okay, don't I think, have and you many might, more. You might, I don't know if you'll agree with this. I think this is someone who I believe beginning of last season I was hyping up, and she's kind of leveled off a little bit. Uh, Caroline Dolahai with her game, uh, she has a huge game and big serve, big forehand. And yes, Ellen Paris plays a tricky lefty game, but I kind of expected Dolahai to be doing a little better by now. No, that's a really good that's a really good point as well. That is someone I would throw on that list too because it's almost a little Katie McNally ish, right? They're both outstanding doubles players already, top fifty in the WTA ranks, but in singles, it just gets a little one dimensional. Yeah, her and uh, her and uh, Jennifer Brady play a nasty doubles uh, team or nasty doubles team to play. It, oh, th- those forehands, that- yeah, look out for those forehands and serves. Yeah. Oh, and I mean, Dal had the volleys. So yeah, she's a phenomenal. I agree. That's a really fun doubles team. Um, but that's a good addition as well because I too continue to expect to see a pop from her. Be in the top 100. Stick around for a while. She's got the weapons. It just unfortunately it hasn't quite happened yet for her. But uh, perhaps it will sometime in the near future. But of course, again, that's our breakdown of Australian Open qualifying. We will get to see all of these players head over to Australia and hopefully compete in the next couple of weeks. And that's something we, of course, can look forward to now. Until then, David, what will you be writing about? What are the things on your mind? And where can all of our listeners find your work? So you can find my work at, at Tennis Blogger One. Um, I'm uh, planning an Australian Open preview. I, I'm going to write another article. I can't decide the topic yet, but we'll see. I'm planning on it. Um, and then, yeah, it, I'm just so excited about the Australian Open. Um, it's gonna. It's nice to have tennis back. Like we were saying, it's kind of like they were teasing us, but this past week. But it's just great to have you know tennis back. And yeah, thanks to Tylee for. Uh, organizing everything with the Australian Open. It's certainly not easy. <laughs> oh, you say thank you now. We'll see. We'll see. No, of course, a huge shout-out to the entire Tennis Australia team. All right, you know, we're going to have to get you writing something for Cracked Rackets. I've got some ideas in mind. We can text about them off mic. But um, I, I think, again, we're, we're, it's not. I don't want to just typecast you as the next-gen guy. I know there are other things you're interested in as well, David. So we'll be sure not only to uh, have you back on the show but get you back on the website as well, CrackedRackets.com, where, of course, you can find that next-gen ATP 2.0 series David and I did talking about so many of the young stars currently rising in the men's game of course you can also find things like our weekly review previews you can go find our college contender series you can find all of that and so much more Uh, of course if you need those more immediate updates twitter instagram facebook youtube we are at cracked rackets you want to message me directly i am at great shot pod shout out as always to our super producers max fliegler and daniel westoff for the of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15. And of course, be on the lookout for more of our coverage as we prepare for the Australian Open. We're getting ready, folks. It's about, what, two, three weeks away now? So uh, all of us going to get amped for days. 
<laughs> yeah, 23 days. Oh, man. The countdown is on. There we go. I am expecting – it's like the they countdown to Christmas. They had that great uh, Twitter thing where they do the number of, uh, of uh, ground strokes for the number mm-hmm. of days left. Have you seen that? Yeah, it's really, really well done. Yeah, and, uh, Serena had a great rally uh, yesterday. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, for sure. Fun. It's like the uh, how ABC Family plays Harry Potter for 30 straight days until the New Year's. That's like what the Australian <laughs> Open is doing right now. But yes, uh, so with all of that in mind for my wonderful co-host David Gertler, our super producers Fliegner and Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host Alex Gruskin. David, what do we tell the people? That's the break. And we will see you all next time. Thank you as always, David. 